Is uh, we have done, and you have done your noble part. El Maestro Speaks Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, and we are recording. So, hello, everyone. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, how are you? You know, um, to this year, 2023, when you try to ask history about, uh, World War Two to children, it was like uh, that history is like a long, long time ago for them. That it is like it is comparable to it's like you were asking them about the years of the dinosaurs, right? So a few of them even give importance to um, that era of history and uh, actually um, few of them even can name the names of eager heroes who had been fighting to free the Philippines during the World War II and then I, I don't know if they could name some names of the eager soldiers who had been fighting during the World War II now um, I, I I had this one, and uh, I this came to my mind because of this post I saw last February 2022 about a teacher um, considered as a local historian and a teacher of Ambuklao National High School. Actually, I know this guy. Uh, we went to the same school when we were in second year high school. That is like grade eight now. Um, he is what I can say a history geek, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, he knows a lot of history. Um, even even the even the what do you call that one, the the uh, versions that is. That actually that is actually disputed by some historians. Um, from him, I heard the <laughs> what do you call the one? It's like a revisionist history or like a conspiracy. Um, it's a conspiracy statement. Like um, Hitler is the legitimate son of Jose Rizal. Uh, things like that. Um, because if you try to look at the portrait of those two guys, take off the mustache of uh, Hitler, place it on the picture of Rizal, they would look uh, similar. They look alike, accordingly. So, uh, I don't know where that came from, but that's one of the um, yeah, conspiracy theory that I heard. And I heard it from him. He shared it to me when we were in... You know, we were in high school. Um, he has a lot. He knows a lot of history, especially World War II histories. Um, I actually borrowed a book from him of uh, the history of people of Binget. I cannot remember who the author is. And he, uh, the funny thing there is that he gave me, I don't know, like, like three days, <laughs> uh, three days to just read the book and. Uh, um, I think I did not attend my class for two days just to finish the book cover to cover. So that's, you know, 
And after that year, he transferred to another school and we never met until now. Uh, I, I just saw him uh, through this Facebook post posted by one of our um, supervisor here in the um, division of Binget. <clears throat> so, um, he is a historian at the same time a collector. Yeah, so, he... he he is actually very passionate about history. And I saw this post and I'll just want to read it with, uh, read it for you. So, more than a decade of after acquiring this from a metal collector in Manila, a local historian and Ambuklao, teacher na uh, Ambuklao National High School teacher, Moller H. Bato, turned over to the immediate family of U.S. A U.S. issued medal awarded to the late Julio A. Bulisles for honorable service while a prisoner of war or POW during the World War II particularly was one of the survivors of the death march from Bataan to San Fernando, Pampanga. Without any condition, condition whatsoever, Bato wholeheartedly turned over this historic medal to the awardee's eldest daughter, Emerita Bulislis Eves, after he was able to contact attorney Jurgensen Lagdao and two other members of the Bulislis clan, whom he searched through Facebook. It's been more than a decade that this medal is in my possession, which I acquired from a medal collector in Manila I knew years ago. How the, how the medal came into him was unknown. I heard the person died four years ago. So no other information available, narrated Bato, who is also a grandson of a World War II guerrilla. I became interested to purchase it since the family name seems to be familiar. My maternal roots traced back in Kapangan too. I am a grandson of World War II guerrilla, and I understand the feeling of losing a very important family memorabilia, he said. The Bulisli's family in turn gave a certificate of appreciation to Bato, saying his commendable acts will be best remembered with lifetime gratitude. <clears throat> As per document account, Holyo E. Bulislis from Kibungan in Kapangan Binget was the first sergeant of the 11th Division, Philippine Army, USAFFE, or the United States Armed Forces in the Far East, that bravely took part in the defense of Bataan in 1942. After surviving the death march, Police Lis rejoined the guerrilla movement in Binguet. His family recalled that he often narrated his war exploits as he wanted to put forward the age-old lesson that people should sweat hard for peace rather than shed blood in war. This is from the Facebook post of Sir Makarte Malanis. So, <clears throat> as a tribute to this guy here, um, so Holyo E. Bulislis, one of the guerrilla, one of the hero of the World War II, and I'm not even sure, I mean, it, their names, and this is what is so sad about this, is that their names are not even in the history textbook, right? Even if they 
I mean for a localized textbook uh, to have a localized textbook that will contain their stories um, we don't have that look at what I've been saying about the Igorot history is that um, we have a few very few accounts of our heroes in the past so it was a tribute to this hero of World War two I just like to um, read his story I want to share his story so what I did is I tried to find a research about the 11th division of the USAFFE but cannot find any so just I entered the name of Sir Julio Abolisles in Google and found this article it was written in I think April 9 1999 by Sir Maurice Malanis I think he is the grandson of this uh, World War II hero and he shared here the story of this um, Medal of Valor awardee and I want to share it with you too and here it goes five decades and seven years after he crawled alive out of the valley of death that was Bataan Julio Bolislis wants his story to be told and retold in the hope that today's generation will learn well the lesson of war in telling his story he wanted to put forward the age-old lesson that people should sweat hard for peace rather than shed blood in war. A survivor of the death march, Ulysses 86 in 1999, um, is now deaf and he limps from an injury from a fall in 1997. But his memory of World War II remains sharp and keen as a Japanese pirate. A native of Kibungan town in Binget, Ulysses was a first sergeant of the 11th Medical Battalion, 11th Division, Philippine Army, United States Armed Forces in the Far East. Igorot soldiers made the 11th Division proud. Humility aside, I remember with pride how American generals described Igorot soldiers as the Tigers of Bataan because they climbed and dropped grenades even in running Japanese tanks, he said. Even the Japanese, as they would acknowledge during our surrender later, were impressed by how well the soldiers of the 11th Division fought. It would be nice, you know, if we can have all the list of the names of those uh, eager soldiers who are in the 11th Division. Yeah. So, to continue. Having finished six months of training, or military training in 1939, he found himself among the first to be drafted in the war after he was inducted at Camp Holmes, now Camp Dangwa, in La Trinidad. Benguet on September 1, 1941, he was immediately sent to Camp McKinley, now Fort Bonifacio in Makati City, where American mentors trained him. With other trainees, he was sent to Pangasinan on November 30, 1941, to train new recruits. A little more than a week later, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. After bombing on December 8, 1941, those who trained 
in Pangasinan became the main defenders of the Lingayen Gulf, a maturity entry point into Luzon. Members of the invading Japanese Imperial Army could not land in Lingayen as we repulsed them, said Police Lis. From Lingayen, Police Lis and his colleagues had to make their way to Pampanga, where they regrouped with other forces from Manila, Quezon, and Apari, Cagayan. They, they spent Christmas in Pampanga, then were ordered to face the Japanese in Bataan. So those are, so just imagine you having just like six months of training and then uh, being the main defender <laughs> when the war broke out. Yeah, that is, is, there's a steep learning curve there and steep change of attitude. Because to, to, to be in a war, you have to be, you have to change your attitude from just, you know, being a normal human to being a fierce warrior to survive. Moving on. They were not totally prepared for the war as they lacked ammunition. There was another problem, equally as serious, the prospect of starvation. We could not fight the war on empty stomachs, Lisley said. So while we were in Pampanga, I commandeered a truck ordered some men to fill it with some 70 cavan of rice from an abandoned warehouse and brought them with us in Bataan. We cooked the rice into lugo. Lugo's like, uh, uh, how do you say it now? Rice porridge? Is that it? <laughs> which helped us sustain, or which helped sustain us for days. In Bataan, they had to be resourceful, resorting to the use of indigenous materials to help secure their camps. With the lack of barbed wire, we fenced off our lines of defense with sharpened bamboos, he said. As a member of the medical battalion, police list attended to wounded soldiers in the front line of combat. Japanese artillery fire burned his left hand in the process. Although not well-armed, Filipino soldiers fought fiercely in Bataan as the Japanese fought in waves like herds of sheep, as police list described it. Despite the lack of food and ammunition, we fought hard against the Japanese until we made our last stand at Mount Samat. This is in Bataan. The April 9, 1942 surrender in Bataan, the Japanese collected their captives, uniform, and paraded prisoners to Pampanga. Oh, no. They're talking of, uh, we're now talking on the, uh, of the death march. So they, <clears throat> they fought hard, but I think they still surrendered. Uh, like what the, the Sir Bolisley said, the Japanese fought like waves of Herds of sheep. Okay, moving on. The 55,000 to 60,000 captives were grouped into teams. Each team had four members. Police list was chosen as a team leader. Four Japanese sentries guarded every thousand captives. After a day's march, they stopped at Japanese camp in Barangay de Lapihan. Pampanga coastal village. Tired and hungry, the captives wanted to lie down and get some sleep. They could not. 
The Japanese brandished their swords and bayonets so that we could be compressed like sardines, Police Lee said. Lying down was a luxury. We managed to sleep while squatting or standing. We were all soaked wet and our feces came floating towards us. So this was during the death march already. <clears throat> and uh, the Japanese did not allow them to sleep. Lying down, like six years, lying down was a luxury. You just imagine yourself, can you just imagine yourself standing and sleeping at the same time? Oh, squatting while sleeping. Wow, it's, it's very hard, you know. Um, I think I even read an account from uh, Ferdinand uh, Marcus Sr.'s book wherein they were not allowed to rest. I think that those who will not, who are not able to go or, yeah, go through the march, are killed immediately. At that moment, then they march towards San Fernando Pampanga. They march for twelve days without being given any food or water. To survive, we had to drink even from the murky waters along the way. Police Lee said. Sugar plantations along the way were great blessings. They enabled some of us to escape, and the sugar cane sustained and nourished those who continued to march. Amis thirst and hunger survival became the name of the game. Once I led my team to grab a basketful of balut. Balut is like, yeah, yeah, that's the best delicacy <laughs> of the Philippines. From a vendor along the way, he recalled, Bolislis vividly remembers how Pampanga villagers shed tears when they saw how pitiful the captured soldiers were. They saw that many of us had become too weak to walk. After collapsing on our knees along the way, he said, in their pity, they hurled us some panucha. Panucha is an unrefined cooked sugar. It came from the sugarcane, which we quarreled over like hungry chickens fighting over rice grains. The fit and the strong had better chances to survive. The weak were doomed. Those too sick or too weak to walk, Bullisley said, were either beaten or bayoneted to death. Yeah, that's what I'm saying a while back. So those that cannot walk, you know, so uh, from the another source that I saw is that um, those who cannot walk continue to march were killed through bayonets and those who were alive that the the comrades of those of that person who died must carry the corpse and continue to march so they will carry the corpse and then when they will reach a cemetery that's where they're going to bury those dead prisoners <coughs> and because the prisoners are also the ones who will dig the hole where they will bury their um, dead comrades. Um, what they do is to conserve energies that uh, in one hole they will uh, bury five uh, corpses. That's what I read before. Um, when people in Pampanga saw this uh, happening, they, they tried to help by actually... Um, throwing foods 
because uh, people or the soldiers are marching and then of course some uh, when when people hear that uh, it's either their relatives were captured and they want to see their relatives in the march um, they want to check if they're okay <clears throat> so what they do is they try to bring foods for them um, but it came to a point I think that the Japanese guards did not allow that to happen so sometimes those who throw food to the prisoners are also being whipped or being killed uh, if I, I read one account from President Marcus's book wherein he saw an old lady uh, an old lady saw his child his I mean his son um, marching and then um, he threw a food for his son and the Japanese guard followed that old lady and killed that lady in her house. That's how brutal this death march is. <coughs> um, in this account, he said, uh, Sir Bullishly said that the, the, the sugar cane plantation is a blessing for them because yeah, they can try to get some sugar cane and uh, that will that will be an energy source for them or at times some those who are able and those those who are fast enough to run can use the sugarcane plantation as escape route or um, yeah escaping point okay uh, finally reaching San Fernando the marchers were elated when the Japanese said captives could go home, but after herding them into a train, they ended up at the Japanese concentration camp in Kapas, Tarlac. So that's where they were brought. Um, and um, just to uh, just a, another um, trivia here: this, during this death march, um, Ferdinand Marcus Senior was also part of it. He was captured also, and uh, he joined this death march. And we never know if uh, they met or he was able to have a conversation with Sir Julio Bulislis. To continue with this, uh, Sir Julio Bulislis' story, many survived the long march, but as many as 800 people would die each day at the concentration camp when dysentery epidemic broke out, caused by malnutrition and poor sanitation. We were given only less than a cup of cooked plain rice each day, Bullisley said. We could not wash our hands and practice hygiene as the camp had no water. Bullisley's and his colleagues in the medical corps took care of the sick. The Red Cross provided an anti-dysentery drug, but unscrupulous fellow prisoners of war sold the drug at exorbitant prices. This, <clears throat> this is, I don't know, I, I um, this is very common in all the history, um, uh, in, in, in all in history of uh, Filipino, Filipino struggle, you will always see or you always hear this unscrupulous fellow um, taking advantage of the situation. <clears throat> <clears throat> we, 
We had to resort to boiled guava leaves for other patients, he said. The dead had to be buried in the mass graves with at least 10 corpses in one grave. Whoa, <laughs> what they read before was five now. In his account, it's 10 per whole. They had to be stripped of their clothes so that the living would have something to wear. This made it hard later or relatives to retrieve the bodies as they could not be identified. Yeah, that's the horror of war. Although he had fallen ill himself, Ulysses had a strong feeling that he would survive. When a cricket jumped out of the bowl of rice he was about to eat one morning, he took it as a good omen. In August 1942, Jose Laurel, then president under the Japanese occupation, declared that all sick POWs should be released from the concentration camp and be treated at the Pampanga General Hospital. Bulislis included his name on the list, but an American barred Bulislis from leaving the camp saying he did not look sick. But I scooped up and showed him a sample of my loose bowels which finally convinced the American to send me to the hospital, he said. Three weeks later, he was discharged. His next problem is how to go home to Bagi City and see his relatives in Benguet. A raincoat he had been using at the concentration camp saved him. He sold it for six pesos and fifty centavos. He handed over the whole amount to the teller at the train station, but the teller returned four pesos and fifty centavos after recognizing Ulysses' tattered uniform. Okay, so still, some faith in humanity. The train brought Ulysses and other passengers to Pangasinan. There, the Filipino-Japanese owner of a bus line to Baguio offered the free POW arrived. Bulislis arrived in Baguio in the first week of September 1942. The suffering he experienced and the death he witnessed in the death march and in the concentration camp failed to dampen his spirit to fight again. The war's not over. On October 24, 1943, he joined the guerrilla movement against the Japanese. Bulislis and others formed the hospital company which attended to wounded guerrillas. Like other valiant Filipino soldiers, they served in the guerrilla movement until the Japanese surrendered in 1990, uh, 1945. So, <clears throat> um, this is the story of Julio Bulislis, the recipient of Medal of Valor. Um, he died actually, um, first sergeant, Julio uh, Abelis died in 2005 and was laid to rest in uh, Balakbak, Kapangan, his uh, roots. So that's only one of the many heroic stories of our eagle soldiers during World War II. And uh, it's unfortunate that we 
don't have enough records of those stories that we can tell to these future generations. Um, that uh, I mean, it is it is a story that will help inspire people to not take for granted the freedom that we have right now. A story like this needs to be told. A story like this needs to needs to be shared in a school of how these people sacrificed for for us, the future generations, so that we can have the freedom that we're having right now. The only question for us now is that <clears throat> with the freedom that was handed to us by these brave um, heroes, uh, the freedom that we are having right now, the question is, what are we doing with it? What are we doing to further the cause of our country? And if you're not doing something with it, do you value the freedom that you have by honoring your country? Those are the questions that we need to ponder.